Welcome to Next Left. This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. The smarter politics that is emerging in America recognizes that every elected position has the potential to serve as a platform for transformational change. And that is especially true of city council posts. City councilors govern from the intersection of grassroots engagement and policy. If they do it right, they can remake local, state, and national debates. Few city council members know this better than Austin's Greg Kassar. Kassar came to Austin as an activist. He recognized quickly the potential of the city council and got elected at the age of 25, the youngest councilor in Austin history. Since then, he has pursued groundbreaking struggles for worker rights, immigrant rights, and economic justice. And there have been amazing victories. This week, Greg Kassar is our guest on Next Left. Austin City Council member Greg Kassar. Welcome to Next Left. Thanks for having me, John. I'm excited to hang out with y'all. <laughs> well, it is hanging out a little bit. Hey, I want to talk uh, first about what brought you to Austin. You were born in Houston, uh, went to the University of Virginia, and then came to Austin, as I understand it, working as a on a summer project with the uh, it was a Worker Defense Project. Yeah, so I was already doing student organizing work fighting for living wages and organizing students and employees as a college sort of organizer. But then over the summer, coming back to Austin, coming back to my home state of Texas to work with Workers' Defense Project, which at the time was a really small immigrants' rights and workers' rights worker center, uh, and now is a statewide outfit. But at the at the time was just learning, organizing work and and helped lead a campaign to fight just for the basic right of water breaks for construction workers because there were folks dying on the job because they weren't being given uh, just access to a break on a construction site. And so that was my first time organizing at Austin City Hall, trying to push a supposedly progressive city to do basic, decent, humane things. And I learned that it's something that I liked and that I had a bit of a knack for. And so that's what I kept on doing with them for the next few years. I want to focus in on that that initial fight because you had come, you know, from a a great university and uh, had obviously experience of life in some relatively uh, more comfortable circumstance, and then you came into Austin and suddenly see a circumstance where, as you say, in a liberal city, uh, there are folks who are working. Is it eight, nine? 10 hours without a break? I mean, it seems it seems almost uh, archaic. I mean, gothic. Right. We had more folks dying on a construction site in Texas than anywhere else in the country. And Texas is still the only state that doesn't even require basic workers' compensation insurance if you're working on something as dangerous as a construction site. You know, we had all these fights for things like the 40-hour work week you know, in the last century, but there were folks, you know, working so many overtime hours without a break, not getting paid overtime if they were being paid at all. And so, so I, you know, really learned and became committed to doing that kind of organizing work for the people that were building a city that was supposed to be such a prosperous and liberal city that wasn't living up to that reputation. In college, I thought for a little while that I wanted to be a, a teacher. 
And what I saw so obviously in the classroom was that so many of the things that we would supposedly teachers and education were supposed to fix. And of course, we need a great education system and teachers to open up the vision and minds of, of young people. But so many of the things that can't just be fixed with 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 school and with class if if kids were sleeping in their parents' cars at night because they couldn't afford the rent, or if their parents were having to take three different bus trips to get to work and couldn't afford childcare and didn't have healthcare, or God forbid, weren't being given uh, water or a break on a construction site. And so really trying to attack and work on those root cause issues made a lot of sense to me. And, uh, and I was given the opportunity as a young person to work on that sort of community organizing campaign at City Hall and we soon started escalating from that campaign into bigger and bigger fights, fighting some of the biggest construction companies in the state and in the country, fighting against a lot of the politicians that were on their donation list and against some of the biggest hotel developers in particular before I decided to run for council. Mm-hmm. And you were you were a young guy. You're, you were 25 or when you ran for council. I think yeah, I was 24 when I stepped up and did it and 20 and 25 by the time that it that it was all said and done with. Yeah. And you were also running at a transition point in Austin because they were going to district elections. And for folks who are listening in and maybe have lived in a city for a long time and always had district elections, Austin had a unique situation where a substantial portion of or maybe its whole city council was elected citywide. That's right. We were the largest city in the country until 2014 that had at large elections and they were in May, not in November. And so you had a very small portion of the electorate determining the future for the entire city government. And there was a quote unquote uh, gentleman's agreement, kind of an uh, infamous agreement that there would be uh, one seat reserved for a Latino or Latina and one seat reserved for an African-American uh, council member. But they were those two seats were still decided by an overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly central city electorate in May. Uh, even though we're a city that's at this point, majority people of color. And so uh, in 2014, we went to 10 districts and one mayor election. It's a strong city council, weak mayor system where the mayor essentially has the same vote as any of those council members. And uh, at, at the point of that election, we came back to the dais with nine brand new council members, brand new mayor, and only one incumbent council member coming back. So it was a, a moment of, of huge transition and a huge shift uh, which created this big opportunity for us to bring in movement organizations to really change the politics here and then to leverage that to change the politics across the state. And so here you are, 25 years old, coming into the city council in this transformational moment for the city. I mean, it really it's, it's an exciting thought. And also you ran in and won in District 4, which is on the northeast side of Austin, and a historically underrepresented part of town. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, my my city council district is the lowest income district in the city, by far has the least park space of anywhere in the city, by far has the most immigrant families. It's a working class uh, district, but it's integrated and has a variety of different kinds of neighborhoods, but it's, you know, primarily an immigrant working class uh, community that ha- has just been long neglected by the city for investment. And so in some ways, um, there was the pull to make sure that we took care of the everyday people in the district and fought 
some of the campaigns to make the structural change that we needed for folks to, to, to get by, right? Because it wasn't, we couldn't, we needed to bring parks and basic services to my district at the same time to tackle the problems of why they weren't there in the first place. And so that's part of why having this organizing outlook would be so important so that we could actually empower people through running for office and empower people through the policy work we would do rather than just perpetuating that disempowerment by maybe passing some good policies, but never you know, giving people the tools in my district to participate and to make the kind of change that, that we need. And that's where, that's where a lot of elected officials fall down. They come into office and they actually care about their district. They care about the people they represent. And they, they focus a lot on service provision, making sure that, you know, potholes filled, grasses mowed, things of that nature. But looking at that bigger picture, going on that, that, that question of how do we change the circumstance of folks in a sense so that their lives are, are fundamentally better. You've struck that balance, as you say, coming from your organizing work, but you've also maintained a real focus on the issues and basic concerns of working class folks. And, and I think of your, your work on the paid sick leave uh, ordinance, for instance. You know, you know, when I came into office in a city that has as progressive of a reputation as Austin, where we still had folks working for the city and working on city contracts, making $7.25 an hour. And the entire South, nobody had ever passed a paid sick days ordinance. We had been uh, banned from lots of the labor protections that you've seen progressive cities pass. Uh, but what we recognized was folks in my district were suffering because of these horrible anti-worker policies. But also folks in my district were, are, were excited to organize and to build citywide organization around changing it. And so just in the course of four years, we went from $7.25 to $15 an hour being the minimum for anybody working at the city, anybody working for a city contractor, a 100% increase in four years. And so much of the testimony and the organizing work were folks from District 4 that had never organized, had never come and testified at a city council meeting before. In fact, had never had a council member before. And so we have tried to use that energy and bring those folks in. Because any of us as elected officials don't know the answers to everything. We don't have every different kind of experience, but empowering folks who have those experiences who are so often left out, I think is part of why we've been able to make so much change so quickly. And on paid sick days, we launched audaciously a campaign to have one of the most progressive sick days policies in the country, knowing that there had been no other sick days policy in the South, knowing that we had a Texas legislature that was largely dominated by corporate interests that would want to take this law away from us. And so we launched the campaign basically two weeks after the legislature went out of session with a timeline to get it passed, get paid sick days passed into law by February, and with a strategy to not just do organizing in Austin, but to push for organizing in San Antonio and in Dallas with the goal of having three cities in just a year pass a paid sick days policy so that the legislature would think twice about taking such a popular benefit away from working class people across the state, from millions of people in these three cities. And that kind of an audacious plan is what I think got people actually excited and bought into doing the real work. And we had folks you know, from other parts of the country saying that's impossible. Usually this stuff takes well over a year or two just to get it passed somewhere where we expect it will get passed. But indeed, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas all 
past paid sick days policies, becoming the first three cities in the South to do it, all pretty much within the same 14 months or so. And the legislature, uh, even though everybody said that they would very clearly just pass a law banning sick days policies, they they caved at the last minute, um, recognizing how popular this is as a working class policy, not as a partisan policy, but as something that no matter who you vote for, having paid sick days is just a fundamental worker's right that I think Texans and everybody else across the country assumes that employers should provide. And so, you know, at this point, Dallas now has their sick days policy fully in effect. Uh, and here in Austin and San Antonio, we're in a court battle to get it to go into effect. But I hope ours will be going into effect really soon. I have to imagine that if Molly Ivins was still around, the great Texas uh, journalist and, and populist, it would have warmed her heart. The notion that somebody representing the northeast side of Austin would get a Republican controlled legislature to back down on a on a working class issue. It was, you know, the AFL, CIO, unions, but also the you know, rising reproductive justice movement, uh, criminal justice advocates, lots of folks came together to make that fight a broad fight. And as a matter of fact, when they came for paid sick days, they essentially wrote it in a way, they wrote their preemption bill. The legislature wrote a bill saying, we want to take away all protections for benefits, including those that protect LGBTQ folks. And so mm -hmm. they, in their, essentially in how ravenous the right wing was to take paid sick days away, they actually wrote their preemption policies in a way that hurt so many people that actually brought people together in solidarity to back them down. And so it, they really went so right wing, they went so overboard that, um, that I think that was ultimately their own demise. And my hope is that it's just a microcosm of, of what we see to come in Texas and it's what we need in this moment across the country. So they built the coalition to some extent. That's right. We'll be back after these messages. The biggest problems facing the world don't respect political boundaries, but are our politicians and other leaders up to the task of solving them? Join host Louisa Savage and political journalists from across the world as they unpack the answer to that question on Politico's Global Translations podcast. The first season examines who will write global rules for trade, for new technologies like 5G and AI, and for fighting climate change. Search for Politico's Global Translations wherever you're listening to this show. If you're into the nation's brand of no-holds-barred journalism and analysis, make sure to check out our friends at Mother Jones. They have this awesome podcast out every Wednesday, hosted by Jamila King. It's called The Mother Jones Podcast. Each episode goes deep on something you probably don't know about. One recent three-part series on the show explored America's hidden war in Syria with award-winning journalist Shane Bauer, who went behind the lines of this conflict to bring you surprising stories from inside an ISIS prison and an exclusive interview with the first American woman to be charged with terrorism for joining her husband in the Islamic State. The Mother Jones podcast shares with you the best investigations from the magazine. Think electoral skullduggery, dark money, and Trump's Russia connections, alongside informative interviews with Mother Jones reporters and newsmakers. The Mother Jones podcast makes your week more informed with the stories that really matter. 
told by their team of smart, fearless reporters. Subscribe now on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you enjoy quality podcasts. Welcome back. I'm here with Austin City Council member Greg Kassar. One of the things that's really impressed me also has been the resolute focus on issues of concern to immigrants and to people who are coming to this country. You're the the son of immigrants from Mexico. You have obviously achieved political success, but you're in Texas right now at a point where we're talking not that many days after the the, the murderous attack in El Paso, and also at a time when Texas is so frequently in the focus of the national news because of not just ICE, but all of the family separation at the border and, and things of that nature. That's got to be something that weighs on you, not merely as an individual, but as an organizer, thinking about what you can do and how you can respond. Yeah, you know, for so many of us in Texas, uh, migration has been this extremely natural, normal thing, right? The border is so real and weighs so heavily the way that it is enforced and used, but at the same time is so made up. I mean, my own great-grandmother crossed the desert to El Paso, where my grandmother was born, because she was getting away from the violence happening in Mexico during the war and in the at the end of the war, at the beginning of the 20th century. Then my grandmother moved from El Paso back to Mexico, where my parents were born, who then moved back to Texas. You know, immigration is part of how Texas works. It's part of our history. It's who we are. And the idea that some folks, primarily just based on things like class, are legally called criminals is is just so wrong and discriminatory. And, and, and it really makes no sense when you actually consider respecting every person in your community. And in Texas, and in a place like Austin, that you, oh, in classrooms, you've got documented kids, undocumented kids, immigrants, non-immigrants, all sitting in a classroom together, working together. And so the Trump era has been just so damaging and horrifying. Think There was a lot of deportation happening beforehand that we were fighting and protesting against then. But now in the Trump era, the idea that raids and family separation of these things could be utilized for political purposes to cause fear purposefully in community has just been so hard. And sure, it weighs on me um, as part of my responsibility, but at the same time, I recognize how how hard it really is for so many of my constituents representing the most uh, immigrant part of town. And you know, being an organizer also means trying to be rooted and respectful and to feel some part of folks suffering. And uh, in the few weeks after Trump's inauguration, there were nights where I just wake up pacing my house, knowing that something bad was going to happen. And in February, there were raids across the country that were especially heavy and serious in Austin. Many of them, the biggest parts of the raids happening there right in the middle of my district. And I'll never forget, you know, sitting in a constituent's house who had taped blankets up over the windows to let no light in because ICE had knocked on her door that morning and trying to work with her four kids for them to pack up all of their belongings and abandon the house that they owned. And there was just such trauma in those kids' faces 
by what they had experienced, by what their mom was experiencing. And the fact that it was all ultimately just politically motivated, there's no better word for it for me than just state violence and separation of families is is just a a horrible, horrifying thing. But then that same night, uh, there were immigrant families from all across that neighborhood who took over the streets and shut down the major intersections for days. And the local high school walkouts happened for days because both in these moments of of terror and real suffering, there's also real defiance and resistance and a bold vision for what our community could look like coming from districts and communities like mine in Texas. And so both of those things exist and both of them are real. And from that moment, that's kind of what inspired and pushed us to set up the first publicly funded deportation defense fund in Texas and to show people that through their organizing, their activism, and their speaking up that we can fight back and that we've got to get to the other side of this thing. And that's just part of what representing Texas in this moment feels like. And the recent you know, terrorist attack in El Paso, where someone drove hours to go and kill brown people, it certainly is about gun violence, but it's also about how so many people at the highest levels of power right now are encouraging anti-immigrant and anti-people of color hate. And the way for us to combat that is to organize back and to push back and to denounce that uh, and to continue to provide the space to empower people to to make it make their vision, the vision of the people that are protesting in those intersections right right after the ice raids, to make that vision the kind of Texas that that we know we really are. We hear a lot about this notion of Texas you know, being on a, at a tipping point politically, where it might be a place where progressives could win statewide. And it sounds as if you're one of those people who believes that moment can't come and that, that Texas really could lead rather than, than simply be a place where bad things are happening. It absolutely can come. And what part of the hope is that a a blue Texas is actually a progressive Texas, right? Because- And there is a distinction. And yeah. there's a distinction, right? I mean, my own city and county have been a blue city and county for a really long time, but we still, until really recently, led the state in deportations. We still, until really recently, paid people $7.25 an hour, right? I don't want a blue Texas that is mass incarcerating people, a blue Texas that's trampling on workers' rights. We need- it to actually be a blue Texas that is actually there for working folks. And that's part of what this fight in our cities is all about, is what kind of Democrats, what kind of vision do we have for the state? It's not just about our team winning. It should actually be rooted in changing the the structures in our society and the experiences that people are having living in our society. You know, if people don't have health care, if people don't have access to education or to food and can't pay the rent, then what's the point of who's in control? And so that's part of what we're trying to shape in Texas is to make sure that if the political leaders change, that the politics change too. And you, as a city councilman, joined Democratic Socialists of America. You weren't elected as a DSA member, but you joined while serving on the city council. Is that a part of this notion of thinking about how you change and how you push uh, the Democratic Party to be different? Yeah, I'm, I'm proudly a DSA member. I you know, have been working with the expansion of the Working Families Party here in Texas. You know, We need to build that independent base of political power 
to make sure that if you're calling yourself progressive, you're actually doing progressive things. And to make sure that the folks that get to pick that branding aren't the consultants and aren't corporate Democrats, but are actually the movement organizations that we're trying to build. And so that's part of the hope of working with movement groups to have them own the success and build the success themselves so that way they can ultimately hold us accountable so we can have a vision where the people lead and the politicians follow instead of the other way around. So you've got a cultural side to you. And I am I, I hope I'm not jumping too far beyond, but it sounds like you might be a fan of uh, Hamilton. Oh, yeah. How do you know? Who, who told you that? Somebody on my staff told you? I love it. Nobody <laughs> on the staff told me. You know how I knew? How'd you find out? Because you use a Hamilton reference in making a case for voting rights and, and immigrants and voting rights. Yeah, exactly. I am, I'm a huge fan of Hamilton and, a, and a, uh, was never really a musicals person. But when I, my life partner, she saw the show and she said, we abs- you absolutely have to come and see it. Uh, when I saw the ticket price, I just could not imagine that it could be worth it. And then as soon as it was over, uh, I was like ready to like wipe the tears off of my face and pay for it three more times. But anyway, if I don't know if you want to talk about the, you know, the shows that I like or the, or the voting rights case. I'd probably talk about the voting rights piece too. I like having you talk about both. It's great. But yeah, I'm, I, I love people in politics who are able to make those cultural connections who are able to go and see a play and say, Hey, you know, I got an idea. Let's talk about this. And that's what I'm really interested in. Right. Exactly. I mean, the idea, I mean, I did not know that much about Hamilton until I saw the show. There were a lot of amazing parts within the show, but Hamilton so much focuses on the fact that Hamilton was a recent immigrant and he had only been in the United States, what, around a dozen years. And they already had him writing the constitution to the country. And the fact of the matter is I have thousands of constituents that have been in the United States for 20, 25 years, and they aren't even allowed to vote in a city council election. They send their kids to the public school. They're the entire PTA, and they can't even vote in their school board election. So it's just so clear that when we talk about voter suppression and voting rights, that by far one of the biggest uh, attacks on our basic voting rights is that we refuse to recognize immigrants inherent voting right. I mean, the folks that are actually building and maintaining our our city and keeping it running, elite interests are basically happy to take their labor, but not give them any voice in their government. And so part of what I've advocated for is one, just a basic recognition of folks right to vote. And then two, to really bring those voices into city hall to help us craft policy. Because just like Hamilton was allowed to write the constitution. At least we should be listen to all of our constituents and how it is that we write our laws. And in fact, one amazing thing that we got to do was the state of Texas passed a show me your papers law, which is a horrible law requiring all police officers in the state to be allowed to ask the question, you know, show me your citizenship papers. Was that SB4? And that is SB4. Yeah. We waged a statewide lawsuit against the law. Uh, We won some parts of the lawsuit, lost in others. And unfortunately, statewide law says police officers have to be allowed to say, show me your papers in Texas, including in Austin. But actually, an undocumented immigrant community member themselves came up with this idea when there was sort of a community briefing on the impacts of the law. 
And this person said, but it, the law doesn't say what police officers are required to say right before they ask the question. And that sparked an entire conversation for us to change, to take a big vote to change our policing policy. Lots of immigrants' rights activists and immigrants themselves came and fought and won a resounding city council vote to change policy. And now in Austin, because of Senate Bill 4, we do have to allow police officers to ask the question, show me your papers. But it is required if you're an Austin police officer that before you ask that question, you say the police officer is required to say, I'm about to ask you a question. You do not have to answer the following question. And if you don't answer this question, there's nothing I can do to you about it. Do you understand? Wow. (laughs) And that was something that no think tank came up with. Mm. No national organization came up with. It was a directly impacted undocumented Austinite themselves who saw right through the governor's Senate Bill 4 policy and thought of the perfect way to just gut a really huge part of it. And so to me, that is the real value of both respecting our constituents and respecting everyday people as experts in their own lives, uh, organizing and giving them p- tools and access to power to make their lives better. Uh, and, and then, yeah, and then, you know, seeing, you know, the, the, the idea that immigrants aren't citizens um, is just totally a legal construct made up by folks that want to exclude them from the halls of power rather than include, you know, everyday people who are just like everybody else. I'm going to tell you, man, if, uh, if they, if they ever make the musical about the Austin city council, I think that's a, that's a story that ought to be in it, but you're obviously running a lot and working a lot. And I just want to thank you for joining us. I really appreciate the time. Join us next week on Next Left, when our guest is Tiffany Caban, the New York City criminal justice reformer whose campaign for DA in Queens excited activists not just in the city, but across the country. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia steiner Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhubel. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Join me on the Nation cruise to the Western Caribbean this December 8th through the 15th, sailing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, with ports of call in the Bahamas, Jamaica, Grand Cayman, and Mexico. I'll be joined by Ijin Poo, Joan Walsh, Ben Jealous, Zephyr Teachout, and many other progressive thinkers, leaders, and heroes. Together, we'll explore our turbulent political landscape and debate what can be done about challenges facing the United States and the world. We'll do it all amid the natural beauty of the Western Caribbean. This trip will sell out fast. Secure your spot at www.nationcruise.com. I hope to see you on board.